Section 12 of the Green Fairy Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James O'Connor. The Green Fairy Book by Andrew Lang. Heart of Ice, Part 1. Once upon a time there lived a king and queen who were foolish beyond all telling, but nevertheless they were vastly fond of one another. It is true that certain spiteful people were heard to say that this was only one proof the more of their exceeding foolishness, but of course you will understand that these were not their own courtiers, since after all they were a king and queen and up to this time all things had prospered with them. For in those days the one thing to be thought of in governing a kingdom was to keep well with all the fairies and enchanters, and on no account to stint them of the cakes, the elves of ribbon, and similar trifles which were their due, and above all things, when there was a christening, to remember to invite every single one, good, bad, or indifferent, to the ceremony. Now the foolish queen had one little son who was just going to be christened, and for several months she had been hard at work preparing an enormous list of the names of those who were to be invited. But she quite forgot that it would take nearly as long to read it over as it had taken to write it out. So when the moment of the christening arrived, the king, to whom the task had been entrusted, had barely reached the end of the second page, and his tongue was tripping with fatigue and haste as he repeated the usual formula. I conjure and pray you, fairy so-and-so, or enchanter such a one, to honor me with a visit, and graciously bestow your gifts upon my son. To make matters worse, Word was brought to him that the fairies asked on the first page had already arrived, and were waiting impatiently in the great hall, and grumbling that nobody was there to receive them. Thereupon he gave up the list in despair, and hurried to greet those whom he had succeeded in asking, imploring their goodwill so humbly that most of them were touched, and promised that they would do his son no harm but there happened to be among them a fairy from a far country, about whom they knew nothing, though her name had been written on the first page of the list. This fairy was annoyed that after having taken the trouble to come so quickly, there had been no one to receive her, or help her to alight from the great ostrich on which she had traveled from her distant home. And now she began to mutter to herself in the most alarming way, Oh, prate away, said she, your son will never be anything to boast of. Say what you will, he will be nothing but a mannequin. No doubt she would have gone on longer in this strain, and given the unhappy little prince half a dozen undesirable gifts, if it had not been for the good fairy Genesta, who held the kingdom under her special protection, and who luckily hurried in just in time to prevent further mischief when she had by compliments and entreaties pacified the unknown fairy, 
and persuaded her to say no more, she gave the king a hint that now was the time to distribute the presents, after which ceremony they all took their departure, excepting the fairy Genesta, who then went to see the queen and said to her, A nice mess you seem to have made of this business, madam. Why did you not condescend to consult me? But foolish people like you always think they can do without help or advice, and I observe that, in spite of all my goodness to you, you had not even the civility to invite me. Ah, dear madam, cried the king, throwing himself at her feet, did I ever have time to get as far as your name? See where I put in this mark when I abandoned the hopeless undertaking, which I had but just begun. There, there, said the fairy, I am not offended. I don't allow myself to be put out by trifles like that with people I am really fond of. But now, about your son, I have saved him from a great many disagreeable things, but you must let me take him away and take care of him, and you will not see him again until he is all covered with fur. At these mysterious words the king and queen burst into tears, for they lived in such a hot climate themselves that how or why the prince should come to be covered with fur they could not imagine, and thought it must portend some great misfortune to him. However, Genesta told them not to disquiet themselves. If I left him to you to bring up, said she, you would be certain to make him as foolish as yourselves. I do not even intend to let him know that he is your son. As for you, you had better give your minds to governing your kingdom properly. So saying, she opened the window, and catching up the little prince, cradle and all, she glided away in the air as if she were skating upon ice, leaving the king and queen in the greatest affliction. They consulted everyone who came near them as to what the fairy could possibly have meant by saying that when they saw their son again, he would be covered with fur. But nobody could offer any solution of the mystery, only they all seemed to agree that it must be something frightful, and the king and queen made themselves more miserable than ever, and wandered about their palace in a way to make anyone pity them. Meantime, the fairy had carried off the little prince to her own castle, and placed him under the care of a young peasant woman, whom she bewitched, so as to make her think that this new baby was one of her own children. So the prince grew up healthy and strong, leading the simple life of a young peasant, for the fairy thought that he could have no better training, only as he grew older she kept him more and more with herself that his mind might be cultivated and exercised as well as his body. But her care did not cease there. She resolved that he should be tried by hardships and disappointments and the knowledge of his fellow men. For indeed she knew the prince would need every advantage that she could give him, since, though he increased in years, he did not increase in height, but remained the tiniest of princes. However, in spite of this he was exceedingly active and well-formed, and altogether so handsome and agreeable that the smallness of his stature was of no real consequence. 
the prince was perfectly aware that he was called by the ridiculous name of mannikin, but he consoled himself by vowing that happen what might, he would make it illustrious. In order to carry out her plans for his welfare, the fairy now began to send Prince Mannikin the most wonderful dreams of adventure by sea and land, and of these adventures he himself was always the hero. Sometimes he rescued a lovely princess from some terrible danger. Again he earned a kingdom by some brave deed, until at last he longed to go away and seek his fortune in a far country where his humble birth would not prevent his gaining honor and riches by his courage. And it was with a heart full of ambitious projects that he rode one day into a great city not far from the fairy's castle. As he had set out intending to hunt in the surrounding forest, he was quite simply dressed and carried only a bow and arrows and a light spear. But even thus arrayed he looked graceful and distinguished. As he entered the city he saw that the inhabitants were all racing with one accord towards the marketplace, and he also turned his horse in the same direction, curious to know what was going forward. When he reached the spot he found that certain foreigners of strange and outlandish appearance were about to make a proclamation to the assembled citizens, and he hastily pushed his way into the crowd until he was near enough to hear the words of the venerable old man who was their spokesman. Let the whole world know that he who can reach the summit of the ice mountain shall receive as his reward not only the incomparable Sabella, fairest of the fair, but also all the realms of which she is queen. Here, continued the old man, after he had made this proclamation, here is the list of all those princes who, struck by the beauty of the princess, have perished in the attempt to win her, and here is the list of these who have just entered upon the high emprise. Prince Mannikin was seized with a violent desire to inscribe his name among the others, but the remembrance of his dependent position and his lack of wealth held him back. But while he hesitated, the old man, with many respectful ceremonies, unveiled a portrait of the lovely Sabella, which was carried by some of the attendants, and after one glance at it, the prince delayed no longer, but, rushing forward, demanded permission to add his name to the list. When they saw his tiny stature and simple attire, the strangers looked at each other doubtfully, not knowing whether to accept or refuse him. But the prince said haughtily, Give me the paper that I may sign it. And they obeyed. What between admiration for the princess and annoyance at the hesitation shown by her ambassadors, the prince was too much agitated to choose any other name than the one by which he was always known. But when, after all the grand titles of the other princes, he simply wrote Mannequin, the ambassadors broke into shouts of laughter. Miserable wretches, cried the prince, but for the presence of that lovely portrait, I would cut off your heads. But he suddenly remembered that, after all, it was a funny name, 
and that he had not yet had time to make it famous. So he was calm and inquired the way to the Princess Sabella's country. Though his heart did not fail him in the least, still he felt there were many difficulties before him, and he resolved to set out at once, without even taking leave of the fairy, for fear she might try to stop him. Everybody in the town who knew him made great fun of the idea of Mannikin's undertaking such an expedition, and it even came to the ears of the foolish king and queen, who laughed over it more than any of the others, without having an idea that the presumptuous Mannikin was their only son. Meantime the prince was travelling on, though the direction he had received for his journey were none of the clearest. Four hundred leagues north of Mount Caucasus you will receive your orders and instructions for the conquest of the Ice Mountain. Find marching orders those for a man starting from a country near where Japan is nowadays. However, he fared eastward, avoiding all towns, lest the people should laugh at his name, for you see he was not a very experienced traveler and had not yet learned to enjoy a joke, even if it were against himself. At night he slept in the woods, and at first he lived upon wild fruits, but the fairy, who was keeping a benevolent eye upon him, thought that it would never do to let him be half-starved in that way. So she took to feeding him with all sorts of good things while he was asleep. And the prince wondered very much that when he was awake he never felt hungry. True to her plan, the fairy sent him various adventures to prove his courage, and he came successfully through them all. Only in his last fight with a furious monster, rather like a tiger, he had the ill luck to lose his horse. However, nothing daunted, he struggled on on foot, and at last reached a seaport. Here he found a boat sailing for the coast which he desired to reach, and having just enough money to pay his passage, he went on board and they started. But after some days a fearful storm came on, which completely wrecked the little ship, and the prince only saved his life by swimming a long, long way to the only land that was in sight, and which proved to be a desert island. Here he lived by fishing and hunting, always hoping that the good fairy would presently rescue him. One day, as he was looking sadly out to sea, he became aware of a curious-looking boat, which was drifting slowly towards the shore, and which presently ran into a little creek, and there stuck fast in the sand. Prince Mannikin rushed down eagerly to examine it and saw with amazement that the masts and spars were all branched and covered thickly with leaves until it looked like a little wood. Thinking from the stillness that there could be no one on board, the prince pushed aside the branches and sprang over the side and found himself surrounded by the crew who lay motionless as dead men and in a most deplorable condition. They, too, had become almost like trees, and were growing to the deck or to the mass, or to the sides of the vessel, or to whatever they had happened to be touching when the enchantment fell upon them. 
Mannikin was struck with pity for their miserable plight, and set to work with might and main to release them. With the sharp point of one of his arrows, he gently detached their hands and feet from the wood which held them fast, and carried them on shore, one after another, where he rubbed their rigid limbs and bathed them with infusions of various herbs with such success that after a few days they recovered perfectly and were as fit to manage a boat as ever. You may be sure that the good fairy Genesta had something to do with this marvelous cure, and she also put it into the prince's head to rub the boat itself with the same magic herbs, which cleared it entirely, and not before it was time, for at the rate at which it was growing before, it would very soon have become a forest. The gratitude of the sailors was extreme, and they willingly promised to land the prince upon any coast he pleased. But when he questioned them about the extraordinary thing that had happened to them and to their ship, they could in no way explain it, except that they said that, as they were passing along a thickly wooded coast, a sudden gust of wind had reached them from the land and enveloped them in a dense cloud of dust, after which everything in the boat that was not metal had sprouted and blossomed, as the prince had seen, and that they themselves had grown gradually numb and heavy, and had finally lost all consciousness. Prince Mannikin was deeply interested in this curious story, and collected a quantity of the dust from the bottom of the boat, which he carefully preserved, thinking that its strange property might one day stand him in good stead. Then they joyfully left the desert island, and after a long and prosperous voyage over calm seas, they at length came in sight of land, and resolved to go on shore, not only to take in a fresh stock of water and provisions, but also to find out, if possible, where they were, and in what direction to proceed. As they neared the coast, they wondered if this could be another uninhabited land for no human beings could be distinguished, and yet that something was stirring became evident, for in the dust clouds that moved near the ground small dark forms were dimly visible. These appeared to be assembling at the exact spot where they were preparing to run ashore, and what was their surprise to find they were nothing more nor less than large and beautiful spaniels, some mounted as sentries, others grouped in companies and regiments, all eagerly watching their disembarkation. When they found that Prince Mannikin, instead of saying shoot them as they had feared, said, Hi, good dog, in a thoroughly friendly and ingratiating way, they crowded round him with a great wagging of tails and giving of paws, and very soon made him understand that they wanted him to leave his men with the boat and follow them. The prince was so curious to know more about them that he agreed willingly. So, after arranging with the sailors to wait for him fifteen days, and then, if he had not come back, to go on their way without him, he set out with his new friends. Their way lay inland, and Mannikin noticed with great surprise that the fields were well cultivated, and that the carts and ploughs were drawn by horses or oxen just as they might have been in any other country, 
and when they passed any village the cottages were trim and pretty, and an air of prosperity was everywhere. At one of the villages a dainty little repast was set before the prince, and while he was eating a chariot was brought, drawn by two splendid horses, which were driven with great skill by a large spaniel. In this carriage he continued his journey very comfortably, passing many similar equipages upon the road, and being always most courteously saluted by the spaniels who occupied them. At last they drove rapidly into a large town, which Prince Mannikin had no doubt was the capital of the kingdom. News of his approach had evidently been received, for all the inhabitants were at their doors and windows, and all the little spaniels had climbed upon the wall and gates to see him arrive. The prince was delighted with the hearty welcome they gave him, and looked round him with the deepest interest. After passing through a few wide streets well paved and adorned with avenues of fine trees, they drove into the courtyard of a grand palace, which was full of spaniels who were evidently soldiers. The king's bodyguard thought the prince to himself as he returned their salutations, and then the carriage stopped, and he was shown into the presence of the king, who lay upon a rich Persian carpet, surrounded by several little spaniels, who were occupied in chasing away the flies, lest they should disturb his majesty. He was the most beautiful of all spaniels, with a look of sadness in his large eyes, which, however, quite disappeared as he sprang up to welcome Prince Mannikin, with every demonstration of delight after which he made a sign to his courtiers, who came one by one to pay their respects to the visitor. The prince thought that he would find himself puzzled as to how he should carry on a conversation, but as soon as he and the king were once more left alone, a secretary of state was sent for, who wrote from his majesty's dictation a most polite speech, in which he regretted much that they were unable to converse except in writing, the language of dogs being difficult to understand. As for the writing, it had remained the same as the prince's own. End of Heart of Ice, Part 1 Recording by James O'Connor, Randolph, Massachusetts, August 2010